0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhn.com. We've been in this money... Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to be in trouble. Those mics, costly, and this is classic me. (laughs) It's in the budget. Just clumsy Justin, breaking stuff. Oh, well, um which it's a good segue because money isn't our God here. (laughs) It's not my God. Money doesn't have to be a curse in your life. It doesn't have to be your God. Instead, money can be a gift for God's glory. It can. And that's why we spent four weeks on it to teach us that money doesn't have to ruin our lives. It certainly can't make our lives, but money can be a tool in our lives. And in week one, we heard from Jesus himself who told us we can't serve God in money. That it's just an impossibility. And you can change your relationship with money. We talked about four ways. First was dethrone money as God by seeing the greatest value in life isn't money at all. That Jesus is the greatest treasure. And that reorganizes all of our priorities after that. Second, that week we realized that God created all, therefore God owns it all. Therefore, all money is God's and we are just a manager of God's money in this brief life. Third, we saw that God ultimately promises that heaven is my home. Therefore, I should invest God's money accordingly. And fourth, that giving is the only antidote to materialism, to break the grip of greed in our heart we must generously give to a greater king and a greater kingdom, an agenda that isn't ours. And in week two, we learn more about the reason we do this at all, that ultimately we follow Jesus, the one who gave his body generously and sacrificially for us. sets the pattern for how we respond to God with integrity, being generous and sacrificial people. And we finish 2 Corinthians 9 looking at that God loves, he delights in a cheerful, willing, bountiful giver because God has been cheerful, willing, and bountiful to us first. That God wants his grace to be a chain reaction of generosity in your life. That God and his grace wouldn't stop with you, but it would start and keep going with you. That the things God gives you flow through you to more praise for God and more generosity with others. And this transforms not just our relationship with our bank account, but how we hold our possessions loosely. How we go to work saying, how generous can I be here? Because I can say I love my coworkers, but they probably don't notice unless I'm generous with my time. Generous with encouragement. Generous with the spotlight. Generous with how I interact with folks that our whole life is called to be a generous worship unto God that benefits everyone around us. Do you want to know the difference between an amazing parent and an okay parent? The parent that's generous with their presence. The parent who can sit and give their presence away. They can sit with their child and give who they are away. It's the same thing with a marriage. It's the same thing with a thriving dating and friendship. Would you start to see generosity is your path towards godliness? Because that's where we go today. Paul writes a letter to his young disciple, a young pastor named Timothy. And he urges him this, that he's in the fight of his life and that we are too. Look at verse 12. It says, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to eternal life. Hold tightly to the gospel to which God has called you, that God has called and drawn you and bought with his own blood of his son for you. Hold tightly which you have declared so well before many witnesses. Remember, Timothy's a pastor and he's telling him he needs to fight. It's not like there's some people on a spiritual plane so high that they don't have to worry about this. Instead, this is every Christian must fight for their faith. Our faith is an active one, that Jesus indeed saves us, but we believe and then act on that belief. That faithful living is a part of faithful believing, that they go hand in hand. And he's told to fight for his faith in two big ways. First, he's to pursue what's right. Look at verse 11. It says, pursue righteousness, pursue a godly life, Make the choice to live like Jesus, along with faith, along with love, along with perseverance and gentleness. The part of fighting for your faith is to step out on faith, to live a life of love, to live a life by faith, and to live with perseverance. That's something uncommon in our culture, in our generation. Perseverance, to be absolutely real with your highs and lows, but don't lose yourself along the way. To be able to keep walking, whether you're on the mountaintop or a valley. To not let yourself slip into complaining or grumbling, but also not get puffed up when things go well. But to say, I'm still walking forward, following a Savior who actually loves me, whether I'm on a high or a low. Perseverance, he can add to it, gentleness. That pursuing righteousness is becoming a gentle person. What if your calling card with everyone you met was gentleness in a harsh world? Not a gentleness that denies truthfulness, but a gentleness that draws near to people and speaks kindly to them. But Paul says this fight has an active part. We got to pursue something, pursue following Jesus. But he also says, we got to run from what's evil. We got to run, flee. And verse 11 says this, says, but you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. What are the evil things that Paul's speaking of? Well, he gives two things, and they're directly related to each other, even though it might not appear they are. He gives two things, and it's this first, false teachers and their false teaching on the faith, often repre- misrepresenting Jesus and the gospel. Listen to verses three through five. Look what it says it says, Some people may contradict our teaching. But these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. And anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. And these people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness, a show of being religious, a show of following Jesus is just a way To become wealthy, people who teach wrongly turn their back on the truth of God's word, especially when presented with the truth and choose against it, anyways. And they always cause trouble both for themselves and everyone that follows them. Yet, false teachers often use a show of godliness as a way to become wealthy. In other words, there are people who use religion for money or teach a false gospel for fiscal gain and even the abuse of people who follow them. And today, this comes in many forms. There's a lot of different ways this can look. It could be kind of a garden variety, health and wealth gospel that Jesus promises you'll be healthy and wealthy and everything will work out if you just follow him. Well, Jesus doesn't promise that anywhere in this life. God promises that he will be faithful to provide everything we need to follow Jesus. And he'll do it with a sweet gift of not money or health, but forgiveness for our sins and the lasting peace and joy of God's presence. But God doesn't promise us health and wealth in this life by no means. Or it could look like this. Another form could be a church that chooses to water down the words of Jesus in order to draw the biggest crowd possible, to limit what's taught, in order to make it easy to go down like the medicine. It could look another way, a church that drifts and leaves the doctrines of the Bible to always be avoiding controversy or any criticism of an always changing culture. There's a lot of ways to end up false teaching and to do a show of godliness for fiscal gain. But there's only one way to be godly, and that's to follow Jesus at his word. And see how it relates. The second evil thing that's spoken of is the love of money. Not money itself, but the love or the desire to be rich. Verses nine and 10. But people who long to be rich, you ever longed for something? When I was a kid, I longed for a PlayStation 2. That was a longing of my heart. It just started from the announcement to the day I finally got one. It was it was the best thing that could possibly happen to me. And that was a serious longing. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that, pledge, that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many, many sorrows. Longing to be rich leads to temptations and traps that bring sorrow and you away from Jesus. And y'all have seen it, right? The longer you live, the more these stories kind of pile up. I had a friend that was middle-income, doing pretty good, launched his own business, created an incredible brand, It multiplied, ended up in a couple of brick-and-mortar stores, It kind of launched, It got it to national fame, and he could even articulate, hey, man, somewhere along the way of my material gain of becoming a millionaire, I've lost my affection for Jesus. He could just even say it. Like, just God and churches don't feel all that important to me anymore. And he was both sad, but also didn't want to let go. I had another friend that moved to LA and her, and her, her big goal, it was like, hey, I want to be rich and famous. And that dream just went on and on and on and on. And it's okay to want to be an actor or actress or all those things, but it never worked. And for her, it led to this crisis that kind of has never ended. If I never did get rich. How many people do you know on, that sit on the sidelines of life, coveting and jealous because they longed to be rich and it didn't work? I have dozens of buddies, particularly from college, that got big into gambling or crypto or other risky type investments, only to be filled with sorrow eventually, that the roller coaster eventually ends, and you got to get off the ride. The longer you live, the more parables or stories you'll see. But instead of worrying about everyone else, are we willing to have the courage to look at our own relationship with money? That the real low points, the real tragedies, the real hurts both to us and that we've given, can we ask that was money involved? Was my longing for riches tied up in how I acted and the desires? Are some of these things a little more complex than I let on? And maybe these things weren't just like random mistakes, but if I thought about them, you probably have a pattern in your relationship with money. And the pattern probably repeats itself for years and decades on end, unless we choose to have the courage to look with God and interrupt it and start to have a new relationship with money. Will we ask, does the love of money play a role in the suffering I've caused or the suffering I've experienced from others. Remember, money isn't evil, but the love of it, greed, certainly is. Greed will make you rationalize, believe, and do things you never thought you'd do. Greed will take you places you never intended to go and be a person one day you don't even know. Greed's like a ship that's taking you somewhere. It isn't passive. It will become the active driver of your life. But the solution isn't to forsake money, to treat it as evil, because money is a gift and tool from God. It just happens to be a dangerous gift, like car or fire or that Krispy Kreme on Gadsden Highway next to my house. All gifts, all dangerous nor is the solution to chase the world's ideas of happiness through money. As tempting as that is, that's in the air we breathe. When we talk about the American dream, it's work hard, make it enough, be happy. It's in every air we're breathing. We have to actively say like, wait a minute, that's not how happiness works. Instead, the solution is not to have a show of godliness, but actual godliness. And godliness is a funny word. We don't use it all the time. It means being coming like God or becoming like Jesus by following Jesus. It says to be godly by following God with contentment is the solution. Look at verse six through eight. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can take nothing, can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. See, contentment works like this. There's three little keys in this tiny passage. It says, first, godliness is a great wealth itself, that when Jesus becomes our treasure, money just becomes a tool. There's just a great wealth in godliness to put God first. Second, there's a perspective here that if you're born with nothing and you're leaving the same way, it's pretty foolish to hold too tightly to money in the in-between. You didn't come with it, you ain't gonna take it with you. And third, there's a providence here that it mentions that God provides what we need and we probably need less than we think. Remember, it's people's jobs all the time to convince us we need more. We live in a culture of consuming And at some point, we can say enough that I actually don't need more things or bigger or better things. With essentials like shelter and food and clothing, we can be content with Jesus as the king of our heart. We must realize every day we wake up and we walk into a life that's a buffet of temptation to believe we need something other than Jesus to be happy or satisfied. It's a whole buffet, and it's like a good buffet, not a bad one. But what if you are rich? What if all this, you're like, I don't really desire to be rich. I am. Paul warns against that too. He anticipates that some Christians will be rich, are rich, and look at verse 17. He has advice for them. He says, teach those who are rich. He just assumes it. In this world, not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. It seems so reliable, but then the market crashes and it seems so unreliable, or inflation hits. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need. We shouldn't trust in money or be proud of it because it's unreliable. Instead, trust in God because, well, he is reliable. He's the opposite of the ever-changing money. He's the unchangeable God. But herein lies the great difficulty in preaching about riches is no one thinks they're rich. No one thinks they're rich. And I'll prove it to you that rich is a moving target. The rich is always some other guy, some other gal, some other family down the street or in the next neighborhood or six neighborhoods over. In a recent Gallup survey, they asked people, making $30,000, how much they would need to make to be rich. Their answer, on average, was $60,000, about double what they made. They asked the same question to an income bracket of about $50,000, and you might be able to guess it. They said, when would you be rich? You make 50 as a household, when would you be rich? And they said 100. They jumped a couple uh, economic levels and asked people with about 25 million dollars of liquid assets. That's a lot of money, just be hanging around an account. And they asked those people, hey, who's rich? And they said, oh, if I had about five million of liquid assets. Rich will always be a moving target, whether you have a relatively little, a relatively a lot. It's insatiable the desire for more. When money is the king of our heart, it's a wildfire that will spread into every inch of our lives and it will never be satisfied. To put riches in a more global and historical perspective, the way we should look at it, according to the Brookings Institute, a respected think tank, if you are a single person in America that makes $20,000 a year or more, you are in the top 10% of wealth globally. And I know those numbers can be tough, thinking about cost of living and all the different stats that kind of happen. But the truth is, when the Bible talks about riches, we should just perk up. Just thinking globally and historically of all humans who've ever existed, we are likely that category when we get on the other side of heaven and we meet all people of all time. So what's a rich person like us to do? Let's look at that passage again, verse 17 through 19, because it reads a lot like a list, just a list. of Here's how to be a rich, godly person. Verse 17, rich people's trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good, that they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, Always being ready to share with others that by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. We are to trust God who gives money as a gift. And what do we use a true gift for? When you give a gift to your child, what what's a true gift for? It's for you their enjoyment. It's for their enjoyment that God gives you every dollar you have to enjoy. Not in ungodly or foolish ways that lead to sorrow or lead you to wander away from the truth of Jesus, but money is to be enjoyed. No one ever accused Jesus of being a grouch. Jesus loved to party. In fact, most people left their encounters with Jesus either astonished by his generosity to all people or literally embarrassed by it that it was too much and offensive. When we will get into that more in the Gospel of Luke series of what people's actual reaction is to a God who saves, but we must accept money as a gift from God. And as we accept that, it will probably change everything for you. It will probably change everything for you to accept money as a gift, Period. Not a gift you earn or deserve, but given by God. A gift to enjoy, to do good, to be rich in good works, to give generously to the church, to missions, to mercy, to spend time with people, to provide for people, to have people in your home, just like Jesus. To bless them with good food and your undivided attention, just like Jesus. To make room for folks different than you in every way, just like Jesus. To be generous to those in need, whether they ask or not, just like Jesus. Always ready to share everything you have, even your story, even your vulnerable heart, even your ears, even a hug, just like Jesus. By living this way, you store up treasure in a very real heaven, setting a foundation for eternity. Just like Jesus did, as he lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for you to store you as his treasure in heaven. God actually gives you money so that you can live a godly life like Jesus. That's what he means by enjoyment that you could live a life like Christ. That your life, money must be the tool because it is the gift. It can't be a curse. It can't be your God. But rather it can lead you to godliness as a tool following Jesus Christ. Our Lord has spoken about this and maybe the most powerful line in all of the Gospel of Luke on this very thing. Jesus says this in Luke 9. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, the Son of Man, that's a title of Jesus, will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. As we leave this series, ask yourself seriously, is God our God or is money stealing away your heart? Money isn't a curse. It isn't God. But money is a gift from God that loves you the very most. God wants to use the gift of money for you to live a godly life just like Jesus. Would you let go of the grip of money on your heart and lay down and rest in Jesus' loving, safe arms instead? Godliness with contentment is not only possible, but church, it's the fight of our lives.